Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Sorensen, and I am discussing with Heather Farrell a little bit about women in the scriptures. Heather is the author of the blog, Women in the Scriptures. She has been writing and researching about women in the scriptures for more than a decade. She's the author of the book, Walking with the Women of the New Testament, and co-author of the book, The Gift of Giving Life, Rediscovering the Divine Nature of Pregnancy and Birth. She just finished writing a book called Walking with the Women of the Old Testament. I'm excited to talk about your book. I've had the opportunity to look over the manuscript of your book that's coming out about women in the Old Testament. Let's start out first with a little bit about your background. Tell me a little bit about how you came to be involved. You're a self-trained scholar. Is that true? You don't really have a degree in ancient scripture or anything like that? Right. My degree that I got from BYU is in public health, so totally unrelated. Totally (laughs) unrelated. Great. So how did it come about that you have made yourself a scholar about women in the scriptures? When I was at BYU, I did a, my minor was women's studies. And so for that, I had to take different classes that dealt with women. And so I took Camille Franck Olson. She had a class on, I think she still teaches it, on women in the scripture. And I took it just because I was interested in, in the scriptures and in women, and I didn't know much about them. And, and that really lit a fire. She was doing research for her book on the Old Testament when I was there, and she recruited the students to do research for her. Now that I look back, I'm like, wow, that'd be awesome to have a bunch of students to do research for you. It was awesome because I went to the library, and I I remember she assigned me Deborah, and so I did a whole bunch of research on Deborah, and it was the first time I had slowed down on a person in the Bible and the person in the scriptures and really studied them in depth and thought about, you know, what does this word mean, or what is this, why did this, why did they say this, or— What is their story? yeah, Yeah, like, who was this person? It really changed how I looked at the scriptures, and— kind of taught me how to do the research of it or just how to even look at the scriptures differently. And that was really invaluable. And so after I graduated, I was staying home with my son. I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything. And I started to kind of start looking online for different things about the women in the scripture that I had learned. I want to know more, you know, I don't, you know, from this class I had taken. And I realized at the time, this was about 10 years ago, there was nothing online about Very little women. available. Yeah, nothing, nothing but LDS really at all. And even just like Christian about women in the Bible, there was like two websites. Now there's more. But at the time, there was nothing. And I remember thinking, somebody should really write about all those women, because I know there's lots of women, and they should write about them. And then the Spirit kind of preached me. I was like, well, you should. And I thought, well, I can't. I don't, I'm not a scholar. And so I just started writing. I started doing what I had learned in Sister Frank's class and just took a woman and slowed down on her story and just kind of thought about who she would have been and who her sons would have be, been, who her husband would have been, what the political climate was, you know, everything you could find the about The context it. of her story. Yeah, the context. And just started sharing things. And I remember people laughing at me at first, thinking, why would you have a blog on women in the scriptures? That's such a narrow focus. But it's been incredible to see the interest from, I mean, lots, not just LDS people, but I get emails from Muslim women and Christian women and every different woman that are excited about the stories and, and about looking at the scriptures from a female perspective. It's been invaluable to me. And I think I've also been able to share that perspective that I've gained with other people too. One thing that I love about the books that you've written is that they are very well researched. It's not just blog commentary. It's looking at, like you said, researching out the context, reading what experts have said about the history, the time periods, the customs, and and then being able to extrapolate from that what these women's lives would have been like and how that adds to what we have in the scriptures about them. Now, it was actually from one of your blog posts 
probably in 2008 or 2009. <laughs> Does that sound about the right, yeah, the right, long time, right time? That for the first time when I read that, I realized how many women are actually in the scriptures. Because I think many of us are under the assumption that like women are mostly left out. I mean, you know, token cameo appearance or whatever. But I read a blog post from you that identified by number. I don't know if you have the numbers, but that there are a lot of women in the scriptures. That opened my mind to realize, hey, I think that's something I've overlooked. First of all, tell us a little bit about how many are in there, and then tell me any other thoughts you have about what are other myths that people believe about women in the scriptures similar to the idea of there aren't any. (laughs) (laughs) There are about 600 women listed in the scriptures. And the Old Testament has like more than 300. And I'd say about half of those women have names. Like the Book of Mormon, people think there's like three or four. And there's actually about 85 women and groups of women, right? You can put like groups of women in there. Mm-hmm. and I, Like and the I usually, daughters of the Lamanites yeah, or things yeah, like, like that. Yeah, I count like a group of like, you know, I'd count like Ishmael's daughters as one person, you know, but even within there, there's, if you count those out, there'd be more, you know? Right. But, and then like the New Testament has over a hundred women. And the Doctrine and Covenants, people think there's only two. But if you start going through about all the women that are mentioned or listed as families, there's lots, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting. You know, there are a lot of women. And I think the the biggest myth, besides that there aren't any, which I think is starting to get, maybe I can take a little bit of credit for that, hopefully, <laughs> but it's starting to get less and less of a myth because I think people are realizing, oh, wow, there are a lot of women here. The next one I think is really the biggest myth is that all the women in the scriptures lived under oppressive patriarchal societies. <laughs> I think we have this myth, and I don't know where it quite comes from. Maybe we take the Middle East as we know it today and kind of take that worldview of how the Middle East is and impose it on the ancient world or that we take the society of, we know the New Testament is more familiar, I think, to most of us than any of the other books of scripture. And maybe we take that society, which really Jewish women at that time period and Roman and Greek women kind of had a more limited sphere. And we take that and we impose it on the Old Testament women or even on the Book of Mormon women. But I think you see, especially when you start studying the Old Testament in depth, is that there was a huge matriarchal presence and where they really had strong female leadership and the women really played a strong role. Maybe not so much politically as as socially, but a lot of the evidence, as you see through the— Broader influence than we often give them yeah, credit for. Yeah, a lot more. I think that's one thing that really shocked me, you know, as I read the Old Testament more and more. is like, there's every once in a while a story that throws you for a loop that you're like, wow, that woman is totally out of place. For example, there's a woman in 2 Samuel 20, and she's called the wise woman of Abel Beth Makkah. And Abel Beth Makkah is the name of a, of a city. And the story is, is that Joab, who's David's general, is after a bad guy. And the bad guy hides in the city of Abel. They're besieging the city. They're basically saying, we're going to kill everybody in the city to get this one guy. And this woman, they call her a wise woman, comes to the wall and calls down to Joab. And basically, she mediates the whole situation. And she calls him out. And she says, do you know who I am? She calls herself one that is made perfect. And then she calls herself a mother in Israel. She says, I am a mother in Israel. Basically, how dare you come against a city? Like, back off. And here she's talking to the general of the entire country. And somehow this woman has some sort of matriarchal power over the city. There's a sense of authority. Yeah. Yeah. And she's the one that goes back and tells the people, let's cut his head off and throw it over the wall so we can get rid of these guys. And they do it. They cut off his head and throw it over the wall. And that's the end. She's the one that's in charge of the whole situation. And there's there's episodes like that throughout the Bible that show us that women really were a lot more socially and and even sometimes politically powerful than we imagine them to be. What are some other evidences that you found about the power of women as taught throughout the Old Testament? Oh, wow. You know, there are so many 
The Old Testament is my favorite book of scripture. The women in the Old Testament are so incredible. And there's so many evidences of women displaying what I would call matriarchal power. The New Testament has a lot of women showing spiritual gifts, which are kind of a gift of the Holy Ghost and those things. And I feel like in the Old Testament, it's you have this really strong matriarchal power that these women emanate that you see in families, you see in marriages, you see in societies. As you ask that question, the very first story that kind of came to mind, and I think one of the ones that has the most meaning to me and, and was kind of one of those times when I read the scriptures and I went, wow, there's so much more here than I ever realized. There's a story of Tamar, and she's not the Tamar that we know about Judah that slept with her father-in-law. This is the daughter of David, and she gets raped by her half-brother Amnon, who's David's heir. So Amnon is lusting after his sister, and he plans this whole big elaborate scheme to get her alone to feed. She, she makes some cakes, and she takes them into his room, and, and he won't let her go. And anyway, and he rapes her, and she begs with him, like, you know, if you did this to me, please, will you marry me? Whatever he had felt for her turned to hatred, and he throws her out. It's a terrible story. The part that's really amazing to me is that after she has this horrible experience, and obviously she's really distraught and upset, and David, who just had this problem with Bathsheba, doesn't do anything. So she's in a really hard position, and it says, and I'll just read this from the scriptures, it's 2 Samuel 13, 18, and it's talking about Tamar. And it said, She had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for which such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then the servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. So this is when he was throwing her out of the house. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. That phrase, garment of diverse colors in Hebrew, is the same word that is used for Joseph's coat of color dream yeah. coat. <laughs> <laughs> right, the coat of many colors, yes. right? But it is also the word that is used for the coat of skins that is given to Adam and Eve after they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we find the only other woman in the scriptures besides Eve that is talked about wearing the symbolic garment is Tamar, who is the daughter of a king. The translation of coat of many colors or diverse colors means like a, it basically means like a, a measurement is what it's talking about, like a colors. Anyway, it's like a measurement of a, like a length or a span. So it's talking about a garment that goes down to the wrists. Finding a woman in the scriptures, who is clothed in the same types of garments and symbolic clothing that, you know, we have today was kind of incredible for me. And I realized, wow, there's so much that we are missing about these women and about their role in the tabernacle, you know, Moses's time and in the temple in Solomon's time and in Old Testament. I think these women knew a lot more and were a lot more, had a lot more power and authority and knowledge than we give them credit for. And I feel a lot of that has been lost, but we have glimpses of it. You bring up another point that I'd like to explore a little bit. The word old in the Old Testament makes these women seem very far removed from us, right? It's an ancient culture. We, you know, it's just, it's hard to relate to. And we maybe assume that these women are very different from us today. What about their experiences and discipleship really is universal? I think history always repeats itself. So as you read through these things, it's so easy to say, oh, they're so different. I think we're a little bit egotistical when we think that way, because I think we have this idea that our generation is different somehow, that we're getting it right. We have all this technology. If you look throughout history, people always prosper and are blessed when they live in according to certain laws and certain ways of life. And they always destroy themselves when they start adapting other things. And so you can see kind of the rise and fall of civilizations, the same reasons. I mean, you could take any of the stories pretty much and transplant them and put them in modern day, kind of like you almost could with a Shakespeare play, right? You could dress them up and put them in different things. And it's the same type of, the same type of universal stories. And so I think- Because the conflicts are universal, the challenges, 
the relationships, things like that, that we can still relate to them no matter what time period they happen in. And honestly, the most interesting, I think, that really dawned on me as I was studying these Old Testament women is that the main, I guess this is maybe from my perspective because I'm looking at it from a woman's perspective, but I feel like one of the main themes of the Old Testament is this conflict between the matriarchy and the patriarchy. Any author that's writing a book is going to introduce their theme of what they're writing about within the first you know, chapter or two, right? So in Genesis, we have God telling us, putting forth the story of the Bible. And you get the story of Adam and Eve, right? Which is a story of male and female, right? Who are very different and very separate in the garden, right? They, we don't see them very unified in the garden. And, and Eve makes a choice and it takes her out of the garden and it separates them in a huge way. So that, you know, there's probably no more two men and women that have ever been more separated in the history of the world than Adam and Eve weren't there. They were totally different. In the moment post-consuming yeah. of the forbidden fruit. Right, after yeah. the fruit, they just, you know, they were so, like, she was fallen and he wasn't, you know, and, and somehow they had to bring that back together. So you feel like that's a theme that's continual throughout the Old Testament is this idea of women and men, the need to be together for God's purposes, but the struggle in coming to yes. that? Yeah, and and it's a miracle and honesty that they bring it back together, right? That's right. a huge blessing that they bring it Let's back together. Let's go there. My very favorite chapter from your book about women in the Old Testament was the chapter about Eve. Throughout history, she is often villainized or mocked. What do you feel like is the most grievous misunderstanding about her? Well, there's a lot, don't you think? You know, she's probably one of the most important women for us to, to understand because she was the first woman. The woman after which all the rest of us have have come. So understanding her is important, and there are a lot of misconceptions. And I think we have to look at that question too from a just a, from an LDS standpoint. We have a much different perspective on her than the Christian world does. And I think sometimes we forget that as Latter Day Saints, we take that for granted that we see Eve's choice as not something that put the whole world into basically hell. Right? That we have to, you know, that we're we at least acknowledge that it was a catalyst for God's plan to move forward. So it wasn't a total mistake. Right. That we see that she, you know, that we acclaim her as doing something good, you know, and that she was part of the plan and that she made a made a choice. And so that's a huge thing that as Latter-day Saints that we carry with us. But I think even in our Latter-day Saint belief about Eve, we still have this kind of feeling that she didn't mess up. You know, she I mean, she did what was right, but but God still gave her the short end of the stick. You know, that he still really punished her. You know, you look at what God tells her and, you know, Eve, I mean, Adam has to toil and labor and, you know, work in the dirt, but Eve gets childbirth and, you know, it says that her husband will rule over her and that her desire will be to him. And we kind of see those things and think, God said, you know, he didn't put them on the same plane. It feels like, you know, sometimes we look at him like, well, Eve, you know, is kind of put in a lower position that she's subservient to Adam. And and that's been used a lot in history, right, throughout the world to oppress women. And I think even as Latter-day Saints, sometimes we we buy into that idea that that she is not equal with Adam, that somehow that God set something up where she was punished or where she's not on the same the same plane. And and I think to understand that, you really have to go back and put yourself in Eve's shoes and think about that when she ate that fruit in the garden, she did not know that there would be a Savior. She did not know that there was going to be a forgiveness for that. She thought she was eating to bring life and that she would die. And Adam joined right on that. You know, he he believed that too, right? And so for them to be told that there was a forgiveness and that there would be a redeemer and that they could return to God again. Everything after that is just joyful, you know, and there's just a lot of joy, I think, that comes to Eve after that to realize I kind of did jump the gun, right? You know, in a way, she really did make a mistake. It was a transgression. She ate the fruit without Adam. 
and she left Adam behind in the garden and she was, you know, all by herself. And that was, a, that was something, you know, that was a mistake, but that she's able to be forgiven. Given what you already mentioned about this struggle throughout the whole Old Testament about matriarchy and patriarchy and kind of the tension between those throughout the Old Testament, it's really interesting that this is the true mistake that happened in the garden. Not so much that the fruit was eaten, since we understand that that was at least at some point part of God's plan for them to fall, but that perhaps the greater mistake was that Eve made this decision independent of Adam and created a wedge between a partnership that God had intended. If you look at it that way, then afterwards when God is giving them her instructions, right? And she says that um, Adam will rule over her. It's not like in a, he's going to control you because you're out of control and you can't be trusted to make good choices. It's more of a, hey, Eve, you know, you have this matriarchal power and Adam has this patriarchal power. They're not supposed to rule each other. They're supposed to go hand in hand. You know, the matriarchal power is not supposed to overpower and crush the patriarchal power. And the patriarchal power is not supposed to crush the matriarchal power. They're supposed to work together, all right? We're going to get this figured out. And, and I think they do it. You know, and with, see. with the father's guidance, yeah. that there, there, there has to be that both of them are doing his will and helping each other. Yeah, and with the Savior. You know, you see the Savior is a very big part of that whole scene. It's the Savior clothing them. It's the Savior offering them a way back. And I think that's a key part because throughout the Old Testament, I mean, the matriarch and the patriarch, you go head to head all throughout the Old Testament. But you have these, you know, these examples of that pull it together where, and those are the times when, I mean, incredible things happen. You get the Abrahamic covenant, you, you know, they pull it together, they get Zion. Whenever men and women pull together, but it always happens when you have humility and you have the Savior, you know, and you have this faith. And, and if you don't have that, then you get this patriarchal power that rises up and totally oppresses and abuses and domineers and does everything to the matriarchal. And, and then the matriarch gets angry, right? Because they're at the- And manipulates. Or- yeah. And then they rise up, the matriarchal rise up, but, but you know- they're not oftentimes any better. The corrupt matriarchy rises up and it is licentious. It's, you know, manipulative. It is wicked. It's, and, and then it's it counterfeit gets, power. Yeah. And it, and it gets out of control. And then the patriarchy goes, oh, wow, that's out of control. And so it rises up and it squashes the matriarchy again in the matriarchy. You know, it's just this unending cycle. But when you have Jesus Christ and you have a, patri- a righteous patriarchy and a righteous matriarchy unified with Jesus Christ, you get it together and and you get pretty incredible things. And There's I think a lot of access to power, yeah, to true power in right. that way. When they're yeah. unified, I mean, you think about male and female together, right? And you create human life. And I think that if we could just magnify that and think about male and female going not just to create human life, but also eternal life and having that together. That's a story we miss in the Old Testament right. is of those examples. Well, if we even starting back at the whole Adam and Eve story, if we talk about Satan as a character in the plot, from the very beginning, his mission is counterfeit power. And so as that's perpetuated throughout the Old Testament, both within the matriarchy and the patriarchy, it's when they abandon God, they lose their true power, and then they fake power through things like manipulation or domination or things like that. Can I give you a really good example of that in the Old Testament? Is Jezebel is a really good example of that fake power, of of a corrupt matriarchy using fake power. Because it, you know, talk about Jezebel, you know, she's a Phoenician princess, and so she brought with her all this belief in these false gods. And she goes head to head with Elijah, right? I mean, it's very much a battle. You know, he mm-hmm. has his, you know, they have that scene where they have the 
it's like the matriarchy versus the patriarchy game show. Yeah, it totally <laughs> is, right? Like, okay, you guys give it a try with on your altar, you call it on your gods, it doesn't work. Well, I'm going to get mine wet and we're going to, you know, and then I'll, right. and then all everybody dies. You know, he totally blows them out of the water. And, and Jezebel in response to this just is angry, you know, and you can tell that she's the one that runs the show. Her husband Ahab is there, but, you know, he's a minor character. You can tell it's Jezebel. But the thing that I think that is so telling about Jezebel is that at the end of her life, she's trapped in a tower and she has armies coming up to her to destroy her. And she looks out her window and she sees these armies down below. And if it was any other person, you think right then you'd start praying, right? It's, you know, for any sort of power. higher power. Yeah. But Jezebel, it says she tires her head and paints her face. So she makes herself beautiful, which I think in some ways is just this a blatant insight into her mind that she felt her power lied in her body and in her female manipulativeness, you know, her able to manipulate um, men with her beauty and with her body. And that's where, when she comes down to her death, that's where she looks for her power. Source. Is in in how she's dressed, you know? And I think that's a really interesting thing. And I think you see that, you know, I mean, I think you can kind of see, you know, that even in our modern day about where we're going to put our faith. Right. Great. Okay. So Jezebel's not the greatest example of true power as exhibited in the Old Testament. What is one of your favorite Old Testament female characters? If there was one that you really could walk with, talk with, and get to know better, who would you choose and why? I really love a woman named Jehoshaphat. And I bet most people have never heard about her because she's a really tiny character, but she's actually Jezebel's granddaughter. Okay. And so I have to give you back history. So there's Jezebel, and then Jezebel's daughter is a woman named Athelia. And Athelia is just a copy of her mother. She marries she marries another king. I can't remember if it's Judean king or the Israel king. I can't remember which one she marries. Anyway, she her son comes to power. Athelia's son comes to power. And then he dies. And then when her son dies, she wants to become queen. So she murders all of her grandchildren so that she can be queen. Because so that none of her sons... No heirs. Yeah, so there's no heirs. So she murders all these grandchildren, except that Jehoshaphat, who is Athelia's daughter, she sneaks into the castle or wherever the kids are, wherever the murders were happening, and takes a baby, her nephew, whose name is Joash, and she takes him and she hides him in the temple for seven years until he's grown. Then she and her husband present him before the people and they overthrow Thalia and they put him in as king. And he's a, he's a fairly righteous king. But the thing that I love most about Jehoshaphat is because she was a righteous woman with really, really bad family. Because she had, her grandmother is Jezebel, her mother is Athalia, and here somehow we get this amazing woman who marries the priest in the temple, you know, the, the priest of the temple, that's who she marries to, which probably really helped her, I think, right? That she married, she made a good marriage choice. But she's an anomaly. Somehow there's this righteous woman among all this wickedness. And she, in rescuing her, her nephew, preserves the line of Judah. If her nephew had been killed, the line of Judah would have been wiped out. So it's she almost, put action to that faith and it literally saved lineage. Right. It, preserve the prophecy, right? That Jesus Christ would be born through. And and I just love that because I think it gives all of us hope that no matter what um, our past is, no matter what our family is like, no matter what our culture is like, that we can be that chain breaker. We can be that anomaly. We can be that Jehoshaphat in any situation that is standing on holy ground and making good choices and rescuing the babies and doing God's plan. And she probably didn't realize what she was doing. You know, it's only with backsight that we look and like, oh, she preserved the whole line of Judah. But she probably never knew that. Or maybe she did know that. You know, maybe she really did know that. But, you know, at the moment, I doubt she thought that when she was saving the baby's life. She just thought this is a baby and it's worth. And 
And that, you know, and even just that, taking that. She knew she was saving a generation, but maybe didn't realize the influence of that over time. Yeah. And she was taking a stand for, for life. You know, she was, you know, preserving life in the face of women who had totally disregarded human life. And she was taking a stand and willing to, willing to stake her own life on standing for the sanctity of life. And I think that's an incredible example and, and, and one that we don't, you know, that's so easy to look over because, you know, she only has two or three sentences in the, in the Bible. Thinking about her story and reflecting upon many of the different stories throughout the Old Testament, it's easy to see how a woman reader could learn a lot by paying more attention to these women in their stories. There are things that we could relate to, things that we could learn from their example, from their bravery, their courage, their power. What do you think that men could gain from looking more closely at the stories of these women in the Old Testament? I think one of the most important things that could happen for a man as they study the women of the scriptures was to be able to step into a female perspective. Women are really good at doing that for a male perspective. You know, if you think about a woman going to church, she is told that Jesus Christ is male, but that she's supposed to become like him. So she thinks, okay, I'm not male, but I can take aspects of male and mix it with my femininity and I can, in my female way, be like Christ. You know, mm-hmm. but men don't have to do that. They see Jesus Christ and they could literally become a man like Jesus Christ. Or even, you know, even when we talk about becoming a, you know, a God, right? We see, and, and it helps that we have our concept of a divine mother that we can reach to, but we still mostly talk about, you know, that become like our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And women are really good at stepping into that. And even in the Old Testament stories, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, right? But the Abrahamic covenant is also the covenant of, of Sarah. But women are good, easy to look at that and say, okay, well, I'm included in there, you know, that we put ourselves into things. And I don't think men have as much experience with that, of being able to take a woman's perspective and step into it. And, and see, say, what virtues can I pull from this to make me a better person? Yeah, what feminine characteristics can I mix with my masculinity to make me more like Jesus Christ? Or what can I mix with God? You know, I mean, what can I, to make me more like, you know, my Heavenly Father and my, you know. Um, who's and to be know. clear, we're not talking about any kind of gender bending or anything like that. We're just, we're talking about looking carefully at the power that exists in each gender. And what can we learn from the capabilities of the other? And what can we emulate? And knowing that the two together, the two genders together, is really what godhood is all about. How can we embrace the power of each gender and become more with God and like God? Right. And if you look at Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament, he talks about himself in both terms of masculine and feminine. You know, he calls himself the rock. And a rock is a very male symbol, right? But then he also talks about himself as being a mother hen. Mm -hmm. And he talks about himself as being bread, which is a very feminine kind of symbol, very nurturing. And he talks about being reborn, that, you know, you have to be reborn into his kingdom. And he uses all this. Or even even in the Old Testament, you know, the images of the suckling mother that doesn't abandon her child, that he is the same way or things like right. that. There's, yeah. you know, and so he uses these imagery. And so I feel like women get a lot more practice at learning how to take the male of Christ and bring it into themselves. And men have the opportunity to take the female and bring it into themselves. So I think that's a really valuable thing that men have the opportunity to do when they study the women in the scriptures is to pause and to put themselves in, in those shoes. The other thing I think that's really important for men to, as I study the scriptures, is to, is to look at those patriarchy and matriarchy relationships. Because it's a struggle. Like there's not one person who's ever felt it is. It's easy sometimes for women to say it's all men's fault. They always totally are suppressive and they're oppressive, but that's almost a crap matriarchy speaking there, you know? I'm not saying that men always get off easy because they really do. You know, there's times when they really are, but I think that's important for 
for both men and women to look at the stories and say, okay, what are we working with here? Are we working with a righteous patriarchy, one that is nurturing and sustaining and uplifting and nourishing? Or are we looking at one that is corruptive and controlling? And same with the matriarchy. Are we looking at one that is receptive and one that is, you know, planting and one that is nurturing and one that is growing? Are we looking at one that is decaying and things too? With that same thought, if we go back to what you said before about the cycle of this matriarchy and patriarchy that kind of rise and fall against each other, but you mentioned that there are times when both are righteous and God's power is with them and things like that. So if we look at those times, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying as a male reader, you could say, when was that right with God and when was their power and what kind of relationship existed between men and women at that time? Yes. Yeah. And I think and a wonderful example from the Old Testament is the story of Deborah and Barak. So in Judges, the book of Judges is actually a really awful book for women. There's lots of terrible stories about women in the book of Judges. But that's because if you read Judges, you have no judge. <laughs> you know, the judges are falling apart. You have no order. The tribes are just doing whatever they want. There's no king. There's no order. And it's a totally corrupt patriarchy that's really, really bad for women. No true priesthood. Yeah, there's no true, I mean, whatever it is, is kind of corrupted and, you know, people are trying to do their own thing. And among all this, you have Deborah. I love what she says in Judges 5, which is her psalm. It's kind of the song she writes after this victory they have. In the days of Shagmar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through the byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until the I, Deborah, arose. That I arose a mother in Israel. And I love that word arose because here you have this crazy out of control patriarchy and I am mother in Israel arose and this matriarchy rises up, right? And the beautiful thing about Deborah is that she probably had enough political power at the time that she could have led the armies herself and done everything that, but she, she doesn't do it by herself. She calls for a man named Barak. She calls for him to come and he comes out with her and she asks him to lead the armies. And Barak said unto her, if thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thy honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera, who is, that's the general they're fighting, into the hands of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. But I love that image of them going together, right? right? And that's, It's and, very reminiscent of the Ruth and Naomi going together. Yeah, yeah. But here it's showing that instead of just two women teaming up, the power in having the man and the woman saying that same sentiment that I'm not going to leave you, we're going to do this together, yeah. and that there's power in that. And both of them being humble enough to do that, right? For Barack to realize that he's not going to get credit for this victory, but saying, I care about the victory more than I care about the credit. And for Deborah, she's just be like, whatever, I the men are totally out of control. We don't need you. Here we go, <laughs> you know? And to have that humility, I think, to bring it together. And the victory that for they her win, to not say that, right? Yeah, and the victory that they win against Sisera and the people this time is a huge one. You know, it's it was completely miraculous. They went up against iron chariots, which was basically with just people on foot soldiers, you know, and, and they're outnumbered. That would be like just a group of people armed with rifles going against, you know, a whole bunch of tanks, you know, equivalent type thing. And it was incredible that they won. But it was a miracle that happened, I think, only because the men and the women were unified and they both displayed that righteous patriarchy, matriarchy together. So some great examples. Let's finish up with this idea about godhood and what it means. We know that the word Elohim is plural, and LDS doctrine acknowledges a belief in divine parents with a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. What do you think that these women of the Old Testament can help us to understand about this idea of the divine feminine? 
there's a quote by Kathleen Schertz, and she wrote an article talking about Jesus Christ's male and female sides. And this is what she says. She says, our concept of the divine woman is itself ambiguous. We are tempted to fill the vacuum with images of a heavenly woman drawn from earthly condition of women. We envision perhaps a nurturing figure devoted to innumerable spirit children, but withdrawn from the wider realm of cosmic government. There have been attempts to fill out our idea of Heavenly Mother by borrowing from descriptions of goddesses in ancient cultures. As appealing as we might find the concept of a dynamic female deity, however, from the perspective of overall morality, the pagan goddesses are ultimately no better role models than are the pagan gods. So how do we handle the absence of information about our Heavenly Mother, the divine being who can embody the spiritual identity of women? Perhaps it is easier to understand this absence when we realize that we lack a detailed description of our Heavenly Father as well. The Savior spoke of the Father at every turn, but when Philip asked to be shown the Father, Jesus replied that the Father was made manifest through the Son. Have I been so long without you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest that thou seest Oh, how sayest thou then show us the Father? John fourteen nine. When we ask about the mother, might not the Lord give us a similar reply? He that has seen me has seen the mother. We think of the Godhead as united in purpose and similar in character. If we as Mormons are going to assert the existence of a female deity, shouldn't we assume that her son mirrors her perfection as well as that as the father? And maybe that takes us back to that quote by Elder Talmadge where he said that Jesus is the greatest, the world's greatest champion of women and womanhood because he represents the best characteristics of both a heavenly mother and a heavenly father. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for talking with us today about the things that you have learned in your study of the women in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. I think it gives us a lot of encouragement to look more deeply at these stories and see what we can learn. And thank you for your time today. You're welcome. It's been wonderful. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.